Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We are in John chapter 21 for our Bible study uh, tonight. Um, I open with a question for you, and that is, what would you do if you found out that you were going to die tomorrow? What would the next however many hours that you have left look like if you really genuinely were told by God, not a doctor's opinion, not maybe, but you knew absolutely that tomorrow was your last day and the only time that you have left is between now and then? I know that certainly, someone just said they'd be happy, you know, (laughs) I know that that certainly, probably some of that time, you would spend uh, reflecting, probably flashing back to certain moments in your life, probably a handful of events that maybe changed the course of the way that you went, maybe a handful of decisions that you made. You would probably spend some time uh, assessing what you did, evaluating uh, your marriage, how you did as a husband or a wife how you did as a father or a mother. You'd probably assess your accomplishments and your contribution. What did I do? You know, what did I, you know, contribute to the world? And in the time that I have, did I live my life to the fullest? You know, you'd probably think about all of those kind of things if you knew that you were going to die. Certainly, you would wonder what's next. You would have that question, even if you're saved, you would probably be filled with wonder as to what's it going to be like to take my last breath in this world and then to take my first breath in that which is to come. And, and you would probably think that way, whether you know Jesus or not, certainly you would wonder what is the answer to the question that has plagued humanity for all of time, and that is what happens after you die. I think for me personally, if I knew for sure that I was going to die tomorrow, I, I don't think I would sleep much tonight. Not because I would be troubled uh, necessarily, but probably because I would want to spend the time that I had with my wife, probably want to talk to her and, and, and really commune with her, maybe uncover some, some areas in my life that, that she has yet to, to see, maybe just spend that time. I'd probably want to spend some time with my kids, speaking into their lives, prophesying over them, using the clarity of being at the end of my time to speak to them. I'd probably want to spend some time praying, probably want to really talk to God and, you know, make sure my account is good, I'm in good place, you know, with him. But I know I probably wouldn't be able to sleep. I wouldn't want to sleep if that was the case. It's an interesting thing, but if you look on the pages of Scripture, there's a handful of times where God did tell certain individuals that they were done and that the next day was going to be their last day. And it's kind of an interesting thing to see what they did. I mean, these were uh, men that knew God and, and that were going to heaven and that led effective lives and to see what they did with their last day, how they responded to the reality that they were going to die. You know, I think of Moses. Moses knew that he was going to die. And Moses was troubled. Moses had this incredible FOMO, you know, this fear of missing out. Like he, he wasn't going to realize the thing that he wanted most. It wasn't going to happen for him, and he was actually troubled. He begged God to change his mind. You know, a man who probably did more to shape humanity than many others, but yet he was troubled at the fact that he was going to die the next day. I think of Saul, not Saul of Tarsus, but King Saul, the first king of Israel. 
the leader of the tribe of Benjamin, and whom God set up over his inheritance. And he found out that he was going to die. He was told that the next day that he was going to die. And he responded with deep regret because with that kind of clarity, being able to see back over his life, he said out of his own mouth, he said, I have played the fool. I wasted my opportunities. I wasted my time. I wasted the the potential on, on things that didn't matter. And I wasted a call from God. I wasted it. And he was filled with this, this deep sense of regret over what he did with his life. You know, I think of Hezekiah. He, he didn't actually die. He was told he was going to, but he was visited by the prophet Isaiah at a time that he was sick, and, and God told Isaiah to tell him to get his affairs in order because he was done. He was going home. And it says that he wept like a bird. Now, I don't know what that sounds like or looks like, And I don't know what motivated that, you know, why he would weep like a bird knowing that he's going to go. But but he did. And apparently, if you want more time, that's the way to go. Because God said, all right, all right, enough, enough, enough. I can't handle the bird thing. You know, you can have a little bit more time. And God kind of turned things around on him. But to think that, that here's this man who made it all the way. I mean, he was the king. And yet he, for some reason, and we're not even told what it was, felt like he wasn't done yet and so he was filled with this anxiety knowing that his time was up and and all of these were were people that you know they made it they did it you know and so it's an interesting thing to think about but can you imagine if you were the person that you found out that you were going to die tomorrow and you were completely at rest with that that you were completely at peace, that you were fully satisfied 100% with the life that you lived. You were at perfect peace with your marriage and your relationship with your spouse and the way that you raised up your kids and the things that you did with your time. You were at perfect peace with your priorities that you could look and you could say, you know what, I, I, did, I didn't do it perfectly, but I'm, I'm content with the way I used my time and my resources and where I placed my values and what I lived for, and I'm okay with, with this. I'm at peace with it. Can you imagine being the, the person who's overwhelmed by their accomplishments? Not because they're aloof, you know, and they just kind of have that pride of, look, look what I did, look what I... But really, genuinely, they look over what came out of their life And they say, this is exceedingly abundantly above what I could ever imagine. This is beyond my wildest hopes or expectations. To be completely ready to go and to be completely at rest and at ease. And the subject of our study tonight as we look at John chapter 21 is that we meet such a man. We meet the man who knew that he was going to go. He was told, he knew not only that he was going to die... But he knew that he was going to die a horrid death, that he was going to be crucified. And in fact, it would turn out that he would be crucified upside down. And yet, knowing that he would die, he was at such rest that not only did he sleep, but he slept so deep that an angel couldn't wake him up to set him free so that he could have more time, which is ultimately kind of what happened. And I just can't imagine that. I can't fathom being between two soldiers, knowing that I'm about to to suffer and die, and just being like, yeah, I did it. It's over. I I won. I'm satisfied. I'm, I'm happy with the way things came out and the way things turned out. The man, of course, is Peter. And if you read Acts chapter 12, you find out that he was imprisoned, 
that it was the will of Herod to kill him, and that at the time that Herod wanted to bring him forth, and he was there, it was the night before, that's when it happened that Peter was asleep. And so it causes me to question as I consider in my own heart, my own life, and where I'm headed to one day, what was it about Peter that caused him at the end of his life, when he had fulfilled it all, to be at a point where he was at perfect rest, both with his life and the fact that it was time for him to go home. And what I find and discover is that that outcome came down to one moment and one decision that Peter made in his life that was birthed from a circumstance that he found himself in. The amazing thing is that it doesn't have to be unique to Peter because it's the same opportunity that you and I are given. We have the same potential and the same ability to have what Peter had. And so the scene, let me set the scene for you. John chapter 21 is where the text is. The time is now that Jesus had died. He had also risen. He had been crucified and he had risen from the dead. Now he had told the disciples that that was going to happen. But they didn't hear it. And I don't know if you can relate to that, where God is telling you something, but you don't really want to hear it. You might know what that feels like to be on the giving end of that if you have kids and you tell them something and they don't want to hear it. And and they say, you never said that. You said, I said it 10 times, you know, and you're not listening. Well, listen, when Jesus told them that he was going to die, they didn't hear it. And we Christians, we have a problem with that part of things. When the cross comes up, when Jesus starts talking about suffering, when Jesus starts talking about death, we kind of tune him out a little bit. And we say, Lord, I like loaves and fishes. I like power. I like walking on water, death, suffering, all that. I'm not sure. And so Jesus had died and Jesus had rose. But all of the disciples are at this point in this scene, kind of in a state of confusion. Because they had been told things that Jesus said They had been promised things. They had heard and seen things. They had an expectation of certain things that were going to happen a certain way. But where they find themselves living practically, it's very far from what they heard and saw and expected and were promised. And there's a reality, if you're a Christian, you've probably discovered this, is that that happens at least for a season in our Christian experience. That Jesus says things, Jesus shows things, Jesus promises things, and we find ourselves confused because we're in a set of circumstances that are very much misaligned with what we heard. This is what he said, this is what he does, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, but I'm finding that that's not my experience right now. And that's exactly the place where these disciples are. They're confused because of this thing. And so they're in their minds wondering, why is there this great disconnect? Why is what I heard so different from what I'm living? And so they're probably thinking, were we deceived? Yeah, we saw him after he rose from the dead, but that was come and gone and fleeting and things are very much the same in our lives. Were we just deceived for the past three and a half years following him? Or maybe the devil won. Maybe just flat out he didn't reign victorious. Maybe Satan got a victory in this thing. Or maybe, they might have been thinking, maybe we were disillusioned. Maybe what we were expecting is the reality that we're walking in right now. It's just not what we thought it was going to be. We had higher hopes than what the reality is, and we were just disillusioned. So he wasn't a liar, but it just isn't what we thought it was going to be. Or maybe they were thinking they're real people, that they were actually disqualified. 
Like, we didn't make the cut. Like, he called us. We were fishermen. He tried to do it with people that were less than qualified, but it didn't really work out. And so maybe he'll come back in another thousand years. He'll find another group of apostles. We were disciples. We were D. They, he needs A. And, you know, and so we just didn't make it. Didn't make the cut. You know, it's for someone else at another time. And so in light of that confusion, not knowing exactly what's going to happen now, all of the 12 leave the area of Jerusalem where the crucifixion had taken place and the resurrection, and they now travel 70 miles up north back to Galilee, which was their home region. Now, that was half obedience, and it was half self-preservation. Jesus did say, go to... I'll go before you and I'll meet you in Galilee. And so there was an element in it of, I guess this is the script. This is what we're supposed to do. But it also just makes sense because that's where they lived and that's where they were from. And if they're going to acclimate back into life, they're going to go back to the place where they were and they're going to get back into the life that they lived, which is exactly what they do. So they're kind of half in obedience and they're kind of halfway kind of taking their life back into their own hands. But in reality, where they are, is that they're halfway between the promise that God gave to them and the fulfillment of that promise. And I hope you know that there is a path that connects between the promise that God gives and the fulfillment of that promise. And that while you're walking on that path sometimes, you can wonder if the promise is actually real. Because while you're making that journey from promise to fulfillment, your back is to the promise, and sometimes you can't see it anymore. And so you can't really tell sometimes when you're walking that path if the promise is coming or if the promise is actually miscarried. Did I miss it in some way? Have I been disqualified? Is he doing something else or was I deceived in believing his promise and giving my life to him in that way? And that's a very real thing that all of us go through. And there's an irony and the irony is that sometimes the further you are down that path that connects between promise and fulfillment, the more that promise seems like it's not real, like it's never going to come to pass. And so we have this feeling like I missed it, I'm disqualified, he's done with me. And that's kind of the feeling that these men are feeling at this time. And now for one man, the man in our study, Peter, there's an added burden. It isn't just the confusion that the others are feeling, but for him, he's dealing with the guilt that came from a deep moral failure that had taken place in his life. Because Jesus had come to Peter in his final hours, and he said, Peter, Satan has desired you, and he's asked that he might sift you like wheat. And he said, Peter, you know that before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times? And Peter said, Lord, no. You got the wrong guy on this one. Now, I know you hear from God, but you didn't hear from God on that. Because even though all of these other guys would deny you, I'll never deny you. In fact, Jesus, I would die for you. And Jesus said, before the rooster crows, before tomorrow morning, I say to you that you will deny that you knew me three times. And Peter was in unbelief about that. The story unfolded. Peter was in a moment of fear, a moment of weakness and vulnerability. He was approached not once, not twice, three times, and three times Peter denied knowing Jesus. He did it in a subtle way, and then he did it in an increasingly intense way, and then he made an oath that he didn't know Jesus. And no sooner did he make that oath that the rooster crowed, 
And somehow Peter, across and through the crowd, made eye contact with Jesus, who at this point was going through his passion and his suffering. Jesus, Peter, connect. The word that Jesus spoke comes back to mind in Peter's heart, and it says that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. And the tragedy of the story is that Jesus died before there was ever a time for reconciliation. And so this man, Peter, not only confused, disillusioned, but also carrying this incredible guilt of the failure that had taken place in his life. And just to think what it must have been like to be Peter in this season. To have the devil just riding on your shoulder and saying that you were the one all along that he was talking about when he said that there's one that's unclean. You were the one all along that, that, that he would say is apostate. That's the son of perdition. It was you. You're disqualified. You're done. You're unclean. You've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You've committed the unpardonable sin. It's over for you, Peter. And he's carrying this on his shoulders as he's going thinking that this is worse than any other sin I could have committed. This is worse than adultery. It's worse than theft. I have offended God. I've blasphemed his spirit. Well, in light of all of this, the confusion, the guilt, the wonder of what's happening, it says in verse 1 of chapter 21, it says that after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise, he showed himself. Tiberias is another name for the Sea of Galilee up in the north region. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and the two other of his disciples. And it says that Simon Peter said unto them, I go a fishing. Now, Peter was a fisherman by trade. And what Peter is preparing to do here is to enter back into civilian life. Jesus had originally called him while he was fishing, and he called him to forsake his nets, telling him that from now on, you will be a fisher of men. And so by Peter saying, I'm going fishing, he is accepting the fact that he has been disqualified, that the plan of God will not be realized in his life, and he prepares to go back and pick up where he left off, knowing that he missed the call, missed the cut. But the rest said unto him, we also go with you. So they all, in their discouragement, felt like it was the right move, that that's what they should do. And so they went forth, and they entered into a ship immediately. Now, we're going to find out that they join an operation, because there's a ship, and then that ship has smaller boats that can allow people to go back and forth to shore. Now, they didn't own any of this anymore, so they literally went out and found work with someone who would employ them as fishermen in this season. And isn't it interesting? Do you see that word immediately right there in the verse? It says that they went into a ship immediately. Isn't it amazing how sometimes when you want to make a wrong move in your life, that the devil's right there to just open up the door at that moment for you to just walk right through. You hit a rough patch in your marriage. And someone comes along and says, you know, I met a guy that can do a seamless and quick and cheap divorce. It'd be real easy for you guys to just part now and go your separate ways. And you go, man, is that the Lord? I've been, I've been struggling with this. And Lord, if you opened a door, I can immediately just get out of this. Or maybe you started a business or you ventured out into something, a ministry, or maybe to write a book or something, and you kind of hit a rough patch, and it's not as easy as you thought it was going to be, and, 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 and plowing through just seems more difficult, and just then you get a phone call from the person that you used to work for, 
And they say, hey, you know what? The things didn't work out on our end after you left, and we're really hoping that you could come back and we could do things a little bit better than we did before and we could maybe work some numbers in your favor. You can say, oh, yeah, this is good. God's opening a door. I felt led. I felt compelled. I felt, but it's not working, and now I might be able to. And so you pull back instead of pressing forward, but watch what happens. It says that that night they caught nothing. There was nothing in it. It was an empty endeavor. It was frustrating to them. It was exhausting that that which used to be easy now is more difficult and it's not working out. I imagine that while they were there, the voice of their past experience was taunting them. Remember what it was like when you were with Jesus? Remember how easy it was? Remember, Jesus would just say, cast your net on this side, and the haul of fish would be so big that the net broke. Remember what it was like with Jesus? When Jesus was there, you just needed a few fish and a few loaves, and somehow with him, that was always enough. It wasn't enough, but it turned out that it was always enough. There was always enough, and then there was leftovers. With Jesus, it was so easy and so good that you would cast a single line, and not only would you catch a lunker, but there would be money in its mouth. And now they toil all night long, and they're left with emptiness, they're left with frustration, and they're left with exhaustion. But then notice what it says in verse 4. It says, but when the morning was now come. And I want you to underline and highlight those words in your Bible, because that is the best news that any Christian can hear, and that is that morning comes. See, in Bible culture, in Bible times, the day started with the evening. The night was always first. The night would always come, and then the morning would follow. And now it says that morning is come. In order for the promises of God to be manifested in the lives of these men that are here fishing at this time, there is going to have to be some element of the supernatural that takes place. Because of the way things have gone down, because of the fact that Jesus was confirmed dead, just in that alone, the fact that the whole operation has been kind of in upheaval, there's going to have to be something very supernatural that's going to happen if these promises are ever really going to be realized. And you can't really expect to see the supernatural happen unless you're in a situation that really is impossible because the supernatural is the violation of the impossible. And so impossible circumstances merit the hope of something supernatural, which is exactly what God is about to do. You you can't, if you're Moses, expect that you're going to see the power of God set God's people free from Egypt Unless you first realize that you can't do it in your own human strength. You have to be faced with the impossibility of things before the supernatural can be revealed. Gideon can't expect that he's going to win a battle against insurmountable odds, 110,000 men. And he only had 32,000. But he's not going to realize the victory in that battle until God brings him down to the level where the statistics aren't improbable but impossible so that God can get the glory when the victory comes. And so impossible circumstances are almost necessary before there is a supernatural revelation of God's work and God's power in someone's life. But the good news is that morning came. 
You see, bread that's been put in the hands of Jesus that is then blessed is broken before it's multiplied. Grapes that are harvested and grown, a type of which we are called, Jesus saying, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Grapes cannot be made into their most valuable substance, wine, unless they are first grown and then crushed and then strained and then put in the dark for a while. And sometimes there's pain in the process of going from where we are to where God is bringing us. There's a crushing that is necessary that when we experience God's promise and his blessing, we're not tempted to take the glory or think that it had anything to do with us. And therefore, there's a crushing that's necessary. And it's painful, but it's essential. The good news is that morning comes. It says that when morning was now come, it says that Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. You know, there's probably some of you that are here tonight that you're just facing the sunrise right now and Jesus is standing on the shore of your life and maybe you don't even know what he's about to do, that he's about to come through in your circumstance. But I love the question that Jesus asks in verse 5 and it is pivotal, it is vital, and is of the utmost importance in the process of what he's doing and where he's bringing them. Watch verse 5. It says, Then Jesus saith unto them, he asks a question, he says, Children, have ye any meat? Food. Do you guys have any food? Now, throughout the Bible and throughout John's gospel especially, food represents something. Meat represents something. And what it represents is a satisfied full life. Remember Jesus with the woman at the well? Remember, he hadn't eaten anything and the disciples brought him food and they said, Lord, have you had anything to eat? And Jesus looked at them and he said, I have meat. I have food that you know nothing of. My meat, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. See, it's not talking about what you eat or take in. It's talking about the, 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 the condition of your life, the fullness of your life. Are you satisfied in your life? Later on, they came to Jesus. They said, that, sir, we would see Jesus. And Jesus looked at them and said, you're not seeking me because of anything other than the fact that you ate the loaves and that you were full. And then he said this. He said, don't labor for meat that perishes. Don't live for something that you can take in that fills you for a minute and then passes on. But he says, labor for that meat, the food that really satisfies, that endures to everlasting life. And when Jesus asks this question, it's way more than just do you have any fish or do you have any food that you could bring to shore? He's saying, you guys have gone back to your old life. You've checked out of spiritual things. You've believed the lie that you're disqualified and that God has nothing for you. And you have decided that you're going to live out your days just trying to provide an honest living and hoping that you can make it to glory. And Jesus met them and asked the question and he said, are you happy there? Have ye any meat? Are you guys satisfied with the decision that you made to go back, to sit down, to check out? How's that working out for you? Have ye any meat? Now listen, this is important. Because they have to answer the question and their honesty is what determines or makes the difference between the status quo and them moving forward from the place that they were. They had to be honest when they were asked the question. Notice what they reply. It says that they answered him, no. And that's huge. That's absolutely a magnanimous statement that they made right there. 
Because transformation in this situation is dependent upon them being honest with Jesus. See, Jesus, remember when Jesus asked the blind man? He touched his eyes. And Jesus said, do you see anything? And the guy looked around for a minute and he, and he said, you know what? I, I kind of do. I see men and I see, they're, they're kind of like trees walking around. I can tell they're people because they're moving, but they look more like trees than they look like people. And it says that Jesus touched him the second time and caused him to look up and he said, now what do you see? And the man said, now I see all things clearly. But do you understand that the healing was predicated on his honesty? If the guy said, oh yeah, 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 it's way better. Thank you so much. Man, that was so good. That he would have left from Jesus' presence and he would have seen more than he did before, but he would have hit his head the same day. See, sometimes Jesus asks a question and where we go on the other side of that question is dependent upon the honesty that we'll bring in the answer that we give. See, here's the thing that, that I have learned and that I would pass on to you tonight, and I hope that you'll hear this, is that Jesus and the Bible will not allow you to lower your expectation to the level of your experience. Now, here's what I mean by that. The Bible talks about joy unspeakable and full of glory. The Bible talks about power that translates into a life that looked like Jesus. The Bible talks about peace that passes understanding that guards our hearts and our mind. The Bible talks about an experience of knowing God's presence real in your life moment by moment. The Bible talks about us being able to hear his voice three times in John chapter 10. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And over and over and over again, the Bible tells us these amazing things about this infinite God that we are called to experience and know more and more and more growing in a relationship with him. And the reality is, is that no matter how much of him that you have, how much of him that you know, there is always more of him to receive. But here's what we do, is that we, we hear his promises, and we maybe even pray for those things, we come forward and we profess faith, but really not much changes in our life. We don't really have joy unspeakable and full of glory. We don't really, we prayed for the baptism of, of his spirit. We prayed for his power in our life. But if we're really honest in what we think in, in silence that we'd never admit to anybody else, is that, you know, I really don't know that power. It's really not, not real in my life. I, I don't really know. I don't have victory over sin. I'm still struggling in, in, with X, Y, and Z, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. I don't hear his voice. I don't sense his presence in my life. And I have all these amazing promises but maybe, 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 maybe I was deceived. Or, or maybe the devil won. Or, or maybe I was disillusioned, and, and this is actually the reality. Or, or maybe I'm disqualified. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not him. And so what we do is we lower our expectation to the level of our experience. So this must be joy unspeakable. This must be spiritual power because I prayed for it, and so, therefore, this must be what it is. And we bring our expectation down. The problem is, God doesn't let you get away with that. Because what happens is, then you go back to the Bible, and you read the Bible, and he says it again in more strong terms. Or he shows you someone in your life or around you, not so that you can compare yourself with them, but he shows you what it looks like when someone really knows him and really walks with him. And he doesn't allow you to do it. You can't do it. He doesn't let you do it. And so what happens is you kind of get into this, this thing, and, and the Lord will come to you, and, and the Lord will do it. It's not the devil. It's the Lord. And he'll say, is there any power in your life? 
Children, have you any meat? Are you satisfied? Do you have all of God that there is to have? And you say, oh, devil, you're taunting me all the time. It's not the devil. It's Jesus. And he's standing on the shore in the form of a stranger that you don't know. And he's taunting you. And he's saying, do you have all that you can have? And you, you now have the choice of whether or not you're going to be honest or whether or not you're going to, in faith, lie when you know it's not true. And you know what happens if you lie? You know what happens if you say, yeah, yeah, no, I'm good, I'm full. It's, it's happening, it's real in my life, he's real in my life. You know what happens? Is you start going around in a circle. Because you leave from that encounter, and, and, and you get alone with the Lord, and you say, okay, Lord, I, uh, I, I know these things are your promise, and your promise is your promise, and your word is your word, but I don't feel like I'm really experiencing exactly what you said. I don't think my life looks like the, the example of what a New Testament Christian is. And when I see things that you say, the promises that you give, and you say exceedingly abundantly above, but my life doesn't reflect exceedingly abundantly above. And, 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 and so then you start to think, okay, well, all right, I, I, I must be experiencing that then, but God doesn't let, let me do that. So, so it must be something else. Maybe, maybe I have sinned myself out of his favor. And because of uh, decisions that I made, maybe I didn't make it to my wedding night with my spouse, and God just saw I wasn't, you know, fit to, to really be filled with him. And maybe I've sinned myself down to a point where I can only experience him on this level. I can't have any more of him than that because I've sinned. But then God doesn't let you do that because he says that his mercies are renewed day by day. He says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says that he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west and that he remembers our sin no more. And he says that he doesn't mark iniquities, that he took the law of commandments and ordinances that was against us and that was contrary to us, and he nailed it to his cross. He took it out of the way. So that's not the issue. It's not that I've sinned. It's not, it's not that. I know it's not that because I confess my heart is open, but I still am not experiencing. So, God, what are you doing in my life? And, and then you think, man, you know, maybe God is just, you know what? He's sovereign. He's sovereign. He knows all people, and he's going to bless who he's going to bless, and he's going to harden whom he's going to harden. And he's going to gift whom he's going to gift. And he's going to do what he's going to do. And I'm just not one of those blessed people that gets to walk in the fullness of what he wants. God is sovereign and he's just made his choices and that's it. I'm going to stand here. This is the truth in my life. But God, you're not letting me get away with that. Because you say in your word, you say in your word that you're not a respecter of persons. You, You teach in your word, God, that that your promises are rich towards all. You promise in your word that we are fit to be partakers of your inheritance, the inheritance of the saints in light, that you have made us to be qualified in this. It says that our, our lives are acceptable before you. You said that in Romans 12 and Ephesians chapter 1. And so it isn't just that you're sovereign and I can't because you say that all, and you say that all that come to you and no eyes be cast out. So it isn't a matter of your sovereignty. It must be that I'm not believing right. There's a problem with my faith. There's a problem with my faith. I'm not praying the right way. I'm not saying the right words. I'm not believing God the right way. And so how do I, but wait, if I try to adjust that, then it moves from the category of faith, and now it's not faith anymore. Now it's works because I'm working it out. I'm trying to earn it in some way. I'm trying to make my faith better, but the Bible says that the faith I have is even a gift from God. So it can't be the faith issue because he works in me to willing to do of his good pleasure. And he said a mustard seed was enough. And it all comes from him anyways. And so then 
we think, okay, well, I've eliminated all possibilities of every reason why I'm not experiencing the fullness of it. Maybe, maybe, maybe he's got more for me. And then he comes along and he says, hey, are you full? And we go, yeah, yeah, I'm full. And that becomes the point where the cycle starts over. And you say, you know what my life feels like, really, in reality, as I walk this circle wondering why I'm not really living in it? I'm Samson. Blind. Grinding. It's my life. It's my lot. It's not so bad. Crushing olives. Providing for people. It's okay. Grinding. You say, what gives? Because in some form, that cycle's familiar. The feeling of what that's like is familiar. I wonder if maybe, wonder if maybe, you're not grinding, but maybe you're being ground. I wonder if maybe there's a process of preparation that's taking place in your life to prepare you so that when God does move you into the place that he has for you, your character is right. He's the one that gets the glory that you know it had absolutely nothing to do with you. And by the time you finally get to that place, it's no longer, yeah, I'm fine. It's no, Lord, I'm not fine. Not. I'm blind. I can't see. I don't have a vision for my life. I don't know what you're doing or why. I don't know why I was put on this earth. I don't hear your voice the way I feel like I should. I don't see your promises coming to pass in my life the way you spoke it. A God who's exceeding abundantly above all that I could ask or think. Lord, honestly, in all honesty, no, Lord. I don't have any meat. I'm not full. Ah, good. You can break this cycle now. Notice what Jesus says next. He gives them the absolute worst piece of fishing advice that has ever been given to a human being. He says in verse 6, He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship and you will find. Now they've been down this road before. I don't know if they even had the inkling. I don't think they did because they don't realize who they're talking to for a few more minutes. If you're a fisherman, casting the net on the other side of the boat really doesn't make much of a difference if you've been toiling all night. But Jesus now, in control, it says, They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, spoke to Peter and he said, It is the Lord! Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and he did cast himself into the sea. Now, probably not buck naked. You know, he's just stripped down, he's working. You know, he's free, he's got to move. But when he hears it's Jesus, he puts the coat on. Now, I don't know why you put a coat on when you're about to jump into the sea. Maybe he thought, I'm going to walk on water. This time I'm not going to fail you, Lord. My faith isn't going to falter. You know, I doubt it. He's not in that real condition of mind. He has to be told that it's Jesus. You know, he's, who knows why he puts his coat on, but he does. But in this, what we see is that Peter's already restored. He, he could care less about those guys. He cares less about what they just caught. He has an opportunity to get right with Jesus, to commune with Jesus, and nothing else matters. He jumps into the water. It says, and the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but it was, as it were, 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. 
As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid thereon and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring of the fish which you've now caught. And so Simon Peter went up and he drew the net to land full of great fishes, 153. And yet for all, there were so many, yet was the net not broken. Far cry from the last time this miracle happened. And Jesus said to them, come and dine. And none of the disciples did ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. And then Jesus came and he took bread and he gave it to them and fish likewise. And this is the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus now says to Simon Peter, sure he's filled with apprehension, filled with expectation, filled with wonder. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now he's probably not talking about the fish. Jesus already knows that he doesn't love the fish more than Jesus because he abandoned the fish to get to Jesus. He showed that he loved Jesus more than the fish when he jumped off the boat in the beginning. It's not the fish. But the question is paramount, it's important, and it sheds light on the process and the reason for it. Because part of Peter's word to Jesus before Jesus died was that though all men deny you, I will never deny you. He was saying, Jesus, I love you more than anyone else that lives. Jesus looked back at Peter and said, Peter, that's a problem. Not just because it's not true, but because if that's your attitude and your mindset... For me to move you into your purpose and what I've got for your life, for you to have that mentality that you really love me more than anybody else, you are going to be a terror. Talk about narcissist, train wreck, abuser. You think you love me more than everybody else? Really? You need to see, Peter, the level of the devotion in your heart. And now Jesus, after Peter coming down a few levels, Jesus asks the question, he says, Peter, do you love me more than any of the rest of these people that are here? And Peter answers, and he said to him, Lord, you know that I love you. He doesn't bring anybody else into it, but he says, Lord, you know that I love you. I don't know about the levels. The levels are all messed up now. But you know that I love you. And then Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter, then feed my lambs. First thing he does is he restores the call that he had placed upon Peter's life. Can you imagine the infusion of hope that filled Peter's heart when he heard those words, feed my lambs i got a plan for you yet. And then he said to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? This time not more than these, but just in general. Peter, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said unto him, then feed my sheep. He expands the call. You're not just going to teach in the Sunday school, but i got something greater for you. You're going to feed sheep. I'm going to use your life, Peter. It's going to grow. Your calling is going to expand. It's going to be enriched. But then Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said unto him then, he said, feed my sheep. And so he confirms the calling the second time. Why did Jesus ask the question three times? Some have said because Peter denied him three times. And so there was a restorative sentence for every time Peter said the words that he didn't know Jesus, that the forgiveness was full and that the forgiveness was complete? Maybe. That's a possibility. I think Jesus is probably a little bit deeper than that. I know he's not taunting Peter. I know it's not the kind of things like, who do you love? Who do you love? 
who do you, do you like me now, Peter? You like me now, Peter? You know, I'm sure, I'm sure that wasn't it. But I really think that there's three issues that we all have to deal with when it comes to our devotion to Jesus and how it relates between us and him and us and other people. The first, which we've already said, is to realize that we don't love Jesus any more than anybody else. And Jesus doesn't look at us that way. The second is this, and this is important to understand, is that sometimes we can think that Jesus loves us more than he loves someone else. That's also an error. Well, Jesus, you just love me more than you love everyone else. John says throughout his gospel, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. But he doesn't say I'm the disciple that Jesus loved more than anybody else. The third issue that we have to wrestle with, and this one's probably far more common, is that we think that Jesus loves someone else more than he loves us. Well, Jesus, you really love them. You really love John. You really love the evangelist who's really doing a work for you or the person that you've called or the prophet, you know, but I'm, I'm not in that category. I'm not, I'm not there. You must love them more than you love me. And here's the reality of it, is that he does not play favorites. He is impartial and that his love is fully set upon every one of us equally. There is no favorites with God. And if any one of those things is out of place, that we think we love him more, we think that he loves us more, or we think that he loves someone else more than us, if any one of those things is out of place in our life, then we're not going to see ourselves or God rightly. Do you want Jesus or do you want to outrun someone else? And that's a question that we have to ask ourselves. He's called. Then in the rest of the chapter, Jesus gives him something to do or something to be. He says, follow me. He says it twice. You follow the rest of the passage. But you know, in all this, this, this restoration, this encounter that Jesus had with Peter here, do you know that this is not the moment that defined Peter's last days, the rest of Peter's life? This really isn't the moment. It led to the moment, but this is not the moment because this moment kind of came and gone. You know, Jesus disappears from the scene. Peter keeps fishing. They go back to Jerusalem. But nothing really changes at this point. This isn't the defining moment in Peter's life. Do you know what the defining moment, the thing that changed Peter forever, you know what it was? It happened in Acts chapter 1, verse 15. The Holy Ghost hadn't yet fallen, so you can't blame him. It says that Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples And he said, that was the defining moment of Peter's life. See, Peter had been forgiven, and Peter had been restored, and Peter received the forgiveness and the restoration, and now he stands up again and embraces the call and the plan that God has for his life. That's the moment that made the difference for Peter. See, there's a lot of people that have sinned in some way. There's a lot of people that have checked out or for whatever reason they've backed off. And they've been restored. They've been forgiven. They have an assurance from God that their sin is put away, but they never get up again. They kind of sit forever under the condemnation of what they were, of what their failures were and the whole thing. And they just live there. But see, Peter, what he did, what made the difference in his life is that he endured the crushing of his failure and then the crushing of his confusion while he was waiting to see how the promises would work out in life. He endured all of that. But then he overcame the voice of failure that was constantly saying, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, you're not faithful enough, you don't believe enough, you don't love enough. He overcame the voice that told him everything that he wasn't. He overcame the voice of his inadequacy telling him that he couldn't. 
And he believed that God could use him even if he was inadequate, even if he wasn't enough, and even if he had failed because Jesus wanted to use him in his life. He decided to believe what God said about him rather than what he said about himself or what the devil said about him or what anybody else said about him. And he decided to embrace what Jesus had for him in spite of his own weakness, knowing that if he put his trust in Jesus, that the power would be there to do what Jesus was calling him to do. And he decided to follow Jesus in spite of the difficulty that that kind of a life presents. And there is a certain difficulty that accompanies a life of following Jesus. Peter got up. He stood up. And that made the difference in Peter's life. And you know what? As far as we know, Peter probably never caught another fish for the rest of his life. Maybe never even set foot on a fishing boat again, ever. And we don't know anything about his marriage, what it was like. We know he was married, but we don't know what the state of his marriage was. We don't know what happened to his kids or if he even had any. We don't know about the struggles that he faced. We don't know about the temptations that he endured, the things that he went through. We don't know about the battles and the difficulty, the pressures of what it was for him to be a pastor and an apostle in Jerusalem where there was this constant tension between Jews that were Jews and Jews that were saved. And what was it like to be in that constant place of pressure? We don't know any of that about Peter at all. But here's what we do know about Peter. We know that on the night before he was going to die, or so he thought, he was at perfect rest. And he was completely satisfied with what his life had become, what he'd accomplished. He looked over it and said, it's exceedingly abundantly above all that I ever could have thought that Jesus could ever do in a single life. It's so far above. God, you've been so good to me. And I'm so ready to go and to be with you. I don't feel like I need more time. I don't feel like there's things left undone. I don't feel like there's something still in my hand that I have yet to offer and give. God, I feel like you have done everything with my life. And to you be all the glory for it. And so certain was he that he couldn't be shaken out of sleep the night before he would go to heaven. He was satisfied. He was full. He was finished. Peter was ready. You know, there's three people here tonight as we close. I know in a crowd this size, there's some people here tonight that you don't know Jesus personally. You've never encountered the, the Savior fisherman, God-man. God who manifested in the flesh and took our sins upon himself on the cross, living a perfect life and extending and showing his perfect love by sacrificing his life for the world. You never met Jesus. And what I can tell you, if you don't know Jesus personally here right now, is that if you found out you were going to die tomorrow, you would be filled with terror today. And you wouldn't know if what you did with your life was even what you were put on this world for because you don't even know what that is. Know that you can come to know the Savior and find out the reason that you were made. That person's here tonight. There's another person here tonight, and that's the person that at some point, for some reason, you checked out. There was a time in your life where there was vibrancy, where there was zeal, where there was fire, there was passion, there was a love for God and His Word, there was prayer and communication. He was using you, He was doing things in your life, but, but in that moment, in that, 
in that path that goes from promise to the fulfillment of the promise where, where it seems like everything is, is, is wrong and, and, and you felt that disillusionment or that disqualification or that the devil won or, or you felt that I was deceived that, that this isn't really true. Somewhere in that thing where you were being crushed, you said, you know what, I, I just want to go back to a regular life. And, you know, right now, just working out my 25 or 30 years and, and, and you know, getting the pension and raising the family and just knowing what's going to happen on Saturday and then Monday and then Wednesday, that's just enough. I can, I'm good there. I'm happy there. The question to you tonight is, children, ha- have you any meat? Are you living what God made you for? I heard a great thing this week, and that is that when babies are born... They are born with their hands closed. They, they have closed fists, and then they open them as they come out and they develop. And it's God's way of saying that there's something in your hand that you have to contribute, and it's through the unfolding of your life that it's to be given. Have you lowered your expectation to the level of your experience? Well, this must be what Christianity is because it's all I've got. You know that prior to the discovering of the Americas, every coin that was minted in Spain, which was the westernmost point of the known world, all of those coins were minted with the words N plus ultra. And I probably said that way wrong. It's Latin, not Spanish, so God only knows how you really say it. But what it means is this, is that it means no more beyond. They thought they had gone as far west as the world extended. There's no more beyond. And there are many Christians that for whatever reason, on that pathway to promise, have come to the conclusion in themselves that there's no more of him to experience beyond what I have right now. This is all there is. What you need to know is that with God, there is always infinitely more. And he is not going to allow you to lower your expectation to the level of your experience because he is going to see to it that you constantly are encountered with his size because he wants to pull you further and onward and upward and show you more of himself and deepen your communication and open your eyes to see invisible things and expand your sensitivity to hearing his voice and open doors of and avenues where you can be fruitful and blessed and used and increase your strength as he promised and fulfill the promises that he has in your life. There's a third person here tonight, and that's the person that's sinned themselves into the place where they believe they've been disqualified. And I want to tell you tonight, if your heart is still beating, then you're believing a lie. Because the Bible says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That he has cast our sin as far as the east is from the west and that he remembers it no more. And the word that Jesus has for you tonight, all of you, is get up. Stand up. you, You could. We're done. If you want, you could stand. And if you feel like, yes, Lord, I have to stand tonight. I need you. And we could stand together. And know this, that our eyes are to be upon him that we're to follow. And if we're living far from him, then we're living the shallow existence. We're not living what he has for us. Would you stand? I want to pray for you. Father, tonight I lift up this congregation gathered here in your midst. Father, we thank you that your ways are your ways. And we thank you that you are who you are. And we thank you, Lord, that you're relentless in your cause and in your purpose. 
And we take great hope that you're not finished with us yet. And tonight, Lord, we call to mind the promise and we present it before you that you who began a good work in us, that you're going to be faithful to finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. And tonight, Lord, I take comfort in the fact that you called Jonah to preach to Nineveh and you wouldn't let him out of that calling. He preached the weakest sermon that was ever preached in the history of humanity. He said, 40 days, repent or you're toast. Anyone could have done that. But you wouldn't let Jonah off the hook because you wanted to use Jonah. And tonight, Lord, here in this room full of people, God, there's something that you've placed inside every one of us. There's something that you've put in our hand. There's a depth of relationship that you want to have with us. There's a way in which you want to know us and have us know you that's so completely unique and so amazingly real. And I pray that tonight, God, the great shepherd who leaves the 90 and 9, that you would come and visit each one of us and that you would just speak over our lives right now and that you would say, children, are you full? Is it enough? And would you give us the grace, Lord, to shed the religious barrier? And if it's not, that we would say no. And Lord, would you fill us tonight? So help us, Father, meet with us, revive us, strengthen us, speak to us. And Lord, where we need to arise and where we need to get back on track, I pray that you would move that in us. You see the heart cry of every person here. Would you make it so? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.